in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the story, the teaching and story of the Buddha's death. Um, it's a very rich story and a rich teaching. It starts uh, in the last year of the Buddha's life. And what I, one of the things that I find really interesting about it is it's a, as much a story about living, about life, as it is about death. And so the story begins with the Buddha counseling someone who's interested in going to war. He's a minister. He comes, basically says, well, what do you think? If we go attack these people, will we be victorious? And the Buddha in his sublime way, of course, won't answer a question like that. He starts asking questions. He starts doing some inquiry with the fellow. And he asks about the people they're going to attack. And how do they live, he says. Do they live with kindness? Do they live with mindfulness? Do they care for the people who are more frail? Um, do they care for their elders and the young? Um, do, do, have they developed generosity? Have they developed mindfulness? Um, have they developed compassion? And the minister answers yes to all these questions. And the Buddha says, well, if they've developed them, their life in that way, then they will uh, prosper and not decline. And the minister gets the message, better not mess with these folks. <laughs> and he goes away and tells his king, his lord, and they don't attack. But the Buddha never says don't attack. He just asks, how do they live? And so it's immediately a teaching about how do we live? How do we live in harmony? How do we live... How do we embody the teachings? And when the Buddha, with his omniscience, realizes he's going to die, which he does, he goes around to kind of say goodbye to everybody. Um, He doesn't exactly tell them he's going to die, but he goes around to the various um, enclaves of monks and nuns, followers, practitioners, and he gives his final teachings. And this is a phrase that's used over and over again when you read it. He goes, they say he goes here and then he goes there and he goes to, you know, Saranath and he says, this is morality, this is concentration, this is wisdom. And then he goes somewhere else to New Delhi or Boston or wherever he's going to say goodbye to people. And he says, and he says, this is morality, this is concentration. This is wisdom. And that's what he offers as his last teaching. And so I think it's worthy of us to begin to look at his last teaching, which are really the three baskets of the path, of the Eightfold Path. Morality or ethical conduct is one basket. Um, Concentration or focused awareness is another basket. And wisdom or understanding is another basket. And these are three of the aspects which, of embodiment, which comprise the path and the Dharma, which he emphasized. The Pali words are sila, for ethical conduct, samadhi, for focused awareness, and panya, for wisdom or understanding. And part of what catches my attention here at the end of his life is all of this was also in the first talk he gave after enlightenment. That when he gave this talk which is called the turning of the wheel um, after he was enlightened, one of the main pieces is the four noble truths and the fourth truth is the path, the eightfold noble path. And so really this is one of the, the teachings he offered from the moment, from close to the, in the first few weeks after he was enlightened, all the way through to the end of his life. And here's how the Buddha described his discovery of the path. He said, just as if one traveling through the forest should see an ancient path traversed by those of former days, 
and going along it one should see an ancient city having gardens, groves, and pools. And that city came to be restored so that it became prosperous and flourishing. Even so have I seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of former times. This noble eightfold path, that is right view and right intention, the wisdom basket, right speech, right action, right livelihood, ethical conduct, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, focused awareness. Along that ancient path I have gone, and going along it I have come to fully comprehend that way going to the ceasing of aging and death. And this is his metaphor for freedom, the ceasing of aging and death. And so I'd like to speak to you tonight about the Eightfold Path. Not so much in the specifics of right understanding, or right intention, or right effort, or right concentration, or right livelihood. Not so much in the specifics, which are really important to investigate. And I do want to encourage you to really examine them, look into them, study them, practice them on your own. But I'd like to talk a little more broadly, more as an overview of well, what is a path? And what is it to live one's life as a path? And this is a very common metaphor for spiritual life, a path. Sometimes also it's called a way. One of the most wonderful Buddhist teachings is, uh, begins, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. So Buddhism itself is sometimes known as the great way. And I think it's a helpful it's helpful to have a metaphor like this, that there is a path, because it lets us know, as the Buddha described, that there has been a way through the through the difficulty, through the travails of human life. And I think it's a helpful it's helpful to have a metaphor like this, that there is a path, because it lets us know, as the Buddha described, that there has been a way through the, through the difficulty, through the travails of human life, of life in this human realm, that has been walked or tread by others. And so we don't have to make it up. We don't have to create it. And I don't know if many of you have seen, you know, there's a new biography of the Buddha that's out. Which I thought was interesting. I thought, oh, did she interview his friends or what? How did she, how did she do that? You know, what? you know. And when is the autobiography going to come out? <laughs> or is this the authorized biography or the unauthorized? <laughs> but it's and it's not bad. It's a it's a nice book actually by a woman named Karen Armstrong, and it's interesting when she talks about this piece in the book. Because she describes the Buddha's awakening as characterized by this rediscovery, as he put it. He, he discovered an ancient path that had been tread by the wise ones of other times. That it wasn't exactly his invention. That it was taught by previous Buddhas and the knowledge had faded over eons. You know how long an eon is? An eon in Buddhist mythology, it's something like this. If there's a great stone mountain and a bird's flying by once a year, maybe it's a yuga, I'm confusing a yuga and an eon, but I'll tell you the story anyways. If the bird flies once a year with a silk scarf and rubs over the scarf over the mountain, as long as it takes for that mountain to wear away, that's an eon, I think. Okay. <laughs> is that is that an Okay. Okay. It's a while, okay? <laughs> it takes a while. So but here's this is what's interesting is this kind of rediscovery. It said quoting her, she says Gotama insisted that this insight was simply a statement of things as they really are, which is of course what we're practicing, which is the heart of the Dharma. And that 
she goes on to say, the path was written into the very structure of existence. It was therefore the Dhamma, the Dharma, the truth, par excellence, because it elucidated the fundamental principles that govern the life of the cosmos. That sounds like a good path to me. And it also, one of the things that's beautiful about that is it really is in harmony with what Sharda was saying last night about the universe supporting us. That the path is written into the very structure of existence. That as we come into alignment with things as they are, we discover the path in a natural way. And one way I think about it, this is continuing from this idea about the universe, if you begin to look carefully at yourself, at what we're made of, this is on the elemental level, we're composed elementally of the same thing that composes everything in the universe. Earth, air, fire, and water, space. And it's one way to begin to understand the idea of selflessness or interconnectedness, that we are of the same fabric of everything in the universe, totally unseparate in that way. And so, to come into alignment with the path, to discover it, is to come into alignment with our own nature. One of the things I liked so much about Miyoshin's Dharma talk was when she kept saying how much she could feel the stream of generosity, the stream of generosity for 2,600 years now, of the Dharma being offered out of that stream like really fresh water. And when I reflect on this path, the Buddha, Buddha's path, the path of awakening, I also feel that. I also hope that you're being able, you are able now to actually feel the water that you've stepped in here. That we are in a stream of Dharma. That we're, we're not alone or separate at all. And you can feel it, at least I can feel it, just coming into this hall, the stream of Dharma of practitioners who've come for the last 25 years here with the same struggles, with the same difficulties, with the same confusions, reactions, heartaches, epiphanies, understanding, opening. Some of the people sitting up here have spent years in this room. Isn't that interesting to reflect on? And that it goes back way beyond um, IMS. Can you feel the stream of human beings Actually, no different. Like if you check in, notice how you feel right now. Just your experience right now in all its simplicity, whether you like it or not, or it's, it's easy or difficult. This is what human beings have felt for 2,500 years as they've turned their attention to now and here. Now, I really, it's one of my wishes for you that you feel the stream of Dharma that is washing all about us here. So that we begin to feel the path that has been walked by others. And so we don't have to create the path, but we do have to traverse the path. We do have to do that. Now, we're, Dharma talks partly, there's many different functions. One function is it's a reflection that we do together. And so part of my reflection about the path is I also am always interested in well, what's the benefit of speaking in a certain way and what's the lack of benefit of speaking in a certain way. And the metaphor of path, one of the drawbacks to it is it's very linear, right? We go from here to there. It's generally like when I see a path in my mind, even if it weaves around, it goes from here to there. And I find that it's an okay place to start, but I actually don't want to finish there, at least in my reflection with you. In the 
Buddhist dictionary, here's the definition of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a more literal translation, which is a noble path of eight limbs. A noble path of eight limbs. And that feels starts to feel a little fuller to me. It doesn't feel just like from here to there. More like a tree and like a tree flowers in a number of directions. Here's another metaphor for the path. Can you all see this? This is a Dharma wheel. And the Dharma wheel, if you can see, is empty in the center and then goes out in every direction. And I find this a really good metaphor for the path, the path of Dharma. Now, most Dharma wheels have eight spokes. I don't know why this one has 12. <laughs> it, it might be the secret teachings, and we don't have them yet. <laughs> but it, it gives you the idea. And so now we have a path, and you see it, a wheel like that is empty in the center and goes in every direction. And I believe the path goes in every direction also. That there's no place that it doesn't go as the path kind of uh, flowers in our life. And when I, when I started writing this talk and I continued to reflect on the path and the metaphors of here to there or a Dharma wheel, even, even the Dharma wheel is a little bit too much. What I've come to is that this is where the path begins and ends, right here, right where you're sitting. And so we begin to reflect or understand that the path is not so much in terms of coming and going, but in terms of realization of the Four Noble Truths. And I think you've all had a lot of realization. Anybody here not realize the truth of suffering here this week? Right? It's been here. Anybody here not see the truth of how holding, clinging, craving, pushing away, resisting, grasping is part of suffering, one of the causes of suffering, some of the causes. How many people here have seen, at least for a moment, that when we stop, or when something lets go, or we let be, and we're just here, that a moment of freedom is here in that moment. And it could be here right now. You don't have to change anything, do anything, figure anything out. Let it be, whatever it is right now. And the simplicity, sometimes the freedom comes and, oh, it feels great, but there's also the simple freedom of just now, just this. Nothing added. It's really the grace of freedom. And so in some sense, then, the fourth truth is walking the first three over and over again, over and over again, as we really clarify the understanding, the heart, the mind. So we begin to understand suffering, let go of its cause, and realize cessation, even if it's just a moment, and cultivate this life in this way. Cultivate a life of Dharma. And you've all been called to the Dharma. You've all heard a call. And in actualizing the path, we begin to recognize that call and let it start to move to the center of our life. We recognize that we're moved to come to the path and that we are the path and that this life is our path. This is from, again, Hamid Ali, who's getting quoted more than I've ever heard at a retreat. He said, the desire for freedom, liberation, enlightenment, self-realization, whatever it is called, is not a response to a call 
from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in your own situation. It shows itself as a questioning, an inquiry we could say. It's a questioning of the disharmony you live in, of the suffering that we experience. This stirring must come from you, from your depths. You can use a system to help you, but ultimately it is your life, your quest. The path is you, your mind and heart. The quest does not bring about improvement or perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. I think that's a beautiful understanding of the path. I'm going to offer you a few other um, of our teachers' wisdom. This is from Ajahn Chah, his understanding. He says, traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right view or right speech or right concentration and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path. And the mind and heart is what walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. He continues, this is such a beautiful piece. He says, the heart of the path is so simple. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Don't try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. How's that for advice after a week of this? <laughs> you know, he's saying, don't create another identity. Do not be a meditator, he says. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, just sit. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Just let it be now, in all its simplicity, in all its complexity at times. Now, Munindraji puts it, again, we're, we're simplifying. He basically says, the whole Dharma sits here. The whole Dharma. Isn't that great? The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. It's true. All your questions will be answered here. As you keep looking, listening, wondering, struggling, investigating, loving, caring, hating, reacting, all of it. The whole Dharma is right here. And then Ryokan put it even more poetically. This is a poem both Howie and I love, so I'm glad to make sure it gets in the hall. I, I don't think I heard you say it this time, Howie. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. Now. Don't look for anything but this moment. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? A little Zen joke there. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I know we stirred things up a little bit this week, especially around the self and no self and real and not real. People notice that? And I want to just speak to it a little bit tonight. I don't want to try to explain it, actually. 
Uh, first, I'll tell you a story from my own practice. Well, two stories. One is just in general. I found the idea of anatta very difficult. First, I felt like, oh, I understand dukkha. No problem. Right? <laughs> I know dukkha. Impermanence? Okay, I can go with that. It seems right. There's no me? Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I actually remember saying that. I just remember this to Joseph Goldstein on my retreat. I, I looked at him and I said, you mean to tell me there's no Joseph Goldstein? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, there is and there isn't. And it took me, I don't know, 10 or 12 years to really get a sense of understanding that. But at some point later in my practice, after the first while, it was probably after my mom died. I was on retreat and I was grieving. And sometimes one of the expressions of grief is anger. And I was angry. And I was angry at the Dharma. And I remember Jack Cornfield was teaching and I was sitting in the front row and there was questions. And I was like, there's no self. How come we're all suffering? Who's suffering? What's suffering? What is all this crap about no self? And he, he was really good. He gave me a great teaching. He said, I won't answer that question. That's a question for you to sit with. I was like, come on, give me a break. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to sit with that question. I wanted some answer. And I realized as we've been trying to give you some answers, it's okay for you to sit with it. The Dharma should shake you up a bit. If it didn't, it wouldn't be worth your effort, your sincerity, and the effort and sincerity of uh, people for 2,500 years. It's really, I feel moved, really, at how much people have put in to awakening. And there aren't easy answers always. And so some of our practice is to really struggle with what is this? So, I, I don't wish you to struggle at all. But I know the value of the struggle to understand. Sometimes that's how it is. Mm. That's a little aside. <laughs> so, back to the path. So, if we understand that there's no path separate from you, separate from here, separate from now, then we can begin to talk about the path, okay? Actually, we can't quite begin yet. Here's another consideration I realize we should um, just look at and reflect about a little bit. Remember, the Eightfold Path is right understanding, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness, right effort. What's the commonality there? Right. You got it right. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Some of it's not so hard, right? <laughs> so, for me, this is a really interesting word. The word itself. I like the word right. And the Pali word is sama, and it's defined a lot of different ways these days, right being one of them, true. Uh, Stephen Batchelor often uses the word authentic speech, authentic action, um, sometimes direct. Um, some people use the word wise, wise speech, wise intention. Um, here's Thich Nhat Hanh talking about the Eightfold Path and the word right. He says, right and wrong are neither moral judgments nor arbitrary standards imposed from outside. Through our own awareness, our own mindfulness, we come to discover what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. So this is a nice understanding of the word right. Beneficial speech, beneficial livelihood, beneficial, beneficial to ourselves and others. 
a, a very inclusive sense of beneficial. And so, as we practice, we begin to live a life that's of benefit. And often when we do our, when I make my intention as a yogi or as a teacher, I'll sometimes start, you know, may my practice be a benefit. But it often just goes to, oh, my, may my life, may my very life be a benefit to all beings. Which, of course, includes this being sitting here. Now, again, reflecting a little more on the meaning of right, I've got a few more interpretations for you from the dictionary, some of which I found, find very uh, clear. This is from the Oxford English Dictionary. They say, right, the first definition is of a way or course. So it's directly connected to a path of a way or course direct going straight towards its destination. Appropriate. Responding exact, oh, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. And this understanding of right is also similar to what Sharda said last night about trusting ourselves. And that the appropriate response will come. That as we become a vehicle for the Dharma, as we become to re, as we come to realize the Dharma here, then the, we can trust that the appropriate response will come. And this is, a, this is an understanding in Buddhism that's um, characterized in this way. There's a beautiful Zen koan where a student comes to the abbot and said, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the teacher answers, an appropriate response. Isn't that an interesting answer? An appropriate response. He doesn't say enlightenment. He doesn't say compassion. He doesn't say... He says an appropriate response. We become a vehicle for the Dharma to respond to life appropriately. And that appropriateness at times includes compassion, includes speaking, includes not speaking, includes action, sometimes includes non-action. But it's not rigid. It's not mechanistic. It's alive because we're here now. And that's where the appropriate response is always found, is right here and right now. This is the second definition in the OED that I think is quite relevant to our dharmic understanding of right. And this is to recover one's balance or equilibrium. Isn't that nice? And so, I I don't know if we've said it here, most of you know this, but the Buddha's path, his teaching is called the middle way. And it's not middle in a rigid sense, like this is it and don't veer. It's No, it's a sense of always righting ourselves. That we go through, we really live an alive life that goes this way sometimes and like a sailboat in the life of sailing, and then, oh, you write it. And then you're right for a while, oh, it's great. And then, oh, you get pushed this way. And then you respond appropriately by writing the boat. And so that's how we hope and we, we really hope that our teachings have helped you learn how to do that in terms of your meditation. If you're too tired, you stand up a little bit to write it. Open your eyes. If you're restless, you stay still, relax as a way of writing. If there's a lot of concentration and you're a little dull, bringing in a little more interest and curiosity, a little more precision. If you're very clear but you're, you know, it's, it's too um, scattered, then we want to ground you in the body. and It's, it's all balance. It's just balancing. If you're, you know, attached to sitting, we'll ask you to walk more. If you're attached to walking, we'll say, sit more. If you're attached to silence, we'll make you speak a little bit. It's just writing a little. It's balancing, bringing out the fullness of Dharma. And it's a very common understanding that part of our practice is discovering and rediscovering our balance and our harmony with the way things are, 
because we know we can't fix the way things are, and so we open to the way things are. And that's where our balance comes from. That's where our equilibrium comes from. Discovering the optimal relationship with life to realize awakening. And so, all of ethical conduct in Buddhism can be summed up in one word, which is harmony. We come into harmony with this very life as it is. Again, it's right as a process not a fixing or a mechanistic way. And then this is the piece that really spoke to me in the OED. I was quite surprised. It said, right meaning to bring into accordance with truth. So, speech that brings us in accordance with truth. Action that brings us in accordance with truth. Understanding that brings accordance with truth. I like that definition of right. Bhikkhu Bodhi describes the path in this way. He says, the path brings the teachings to life. The path translates the Dharma from a collection of abstract formulas into a continually unfolding disclosure of truth a living dharma. And it epitomizes, at least for me, the aliveness of the path, the aliveness of the dharma. And that we use the various limbs, the various concepts, understandings about effort or mindfulness or intention to support us in our attempt to bring our understanding, our practice, our virtue in accordance with truth with the way things are. And then I believe we begin to see really the depth of the path and the the inseparability of the path from our lives and from our being. This is from Ken Welber. He says, spiritual practice is not something we do 20 minutes a day or a couple hours a day or even, you know, 20 hours a day. It's not something we do once a week in the morning or a week, once a week on Sunday or once a week for a year, in a year. He says, spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. Is that worth reading again? Spiritual practice is not something we do once a day, or once a week, or one week a year. It is not one activity among other human activities. It's the ground of all human activities their source and their validation, the source and the goal. It is a prior commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, 24 hours a day. When we become the path, it's inseparable from our life. It is our life. And this orientation towards the truth is essential. This commitment to the truth. I think Sharda or Miyoshin, I can't remember, mentioned this a little bit, and it's, I think, important to continue the reflection on our orientation. Because as human beings, and also as animals, remember we have that animal nature, our orientation is generally towards comfort and security. And it's normal. It's a normal orientation. We want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. You'll notice all animals orient towards that, generally. It's a little outside the normal when they don't. And these orientations can be very seductive, even on retreat. I mean, we tend to see, well, how can I be the most comfortable? And it's okay to do that. You might notice if you're 
you know, making sure you have three extra pieces of chocolate cake because that really makes you feel secure or things like that. Or those impulses to make sure you have everything set up. What's so com- it's not bad. I, I do want to make that clear. Comfort's not bad. Security's not bad. As best as you can make it happen. But it's not where freedom is found. It's not where what's called true happiness is found. When we begin to let the truth become the center of our life, we discover a refuge that is beyond conditioned security or conditioned comfort. And there's a paradox here, as you've noticed in many parts of what we've been teaching, many paradoxes. One of the paradoxes here is that we think refuge is in comfort or security, and it's in the opposite. So Alan Watts could write a book many years ago called The Wisdom of Insecurity. You know, we think we have a pain in our knee and if we ignore it, it will feel better. We don't think, oh, if we turn towards it, that's where freedom is. Or if we have a pain in our heart, we think, well, if I just, you know, stay with my breath or if I go do something else, I'll be okay. We don't think, oh, this is where the freedom is, is right in the truth of this moment. Or things get very simple and nothing much has happened. And we think, oh, well, this isn't where it is. It can't be right here, right now, with this. And so we tend to run from suffering towards comfort and security instead of the truth of suffering, which is the beginning of awakening. Ajahn Chah put it this way. I really like this. He said, to run from suffering is to run toward it. To run from suffering is to run toward it. And we begin to see that very clearly here, that that's not where our freedom is. That's not where our happiness will be found. And so slowly, kindly, carefully, we begin to turn towards here and now and this and the way things are, to the Dharma itself, to the living Dharma. Tell you an interesting story of how much... Oh, wait, I'll say one other thing. The value of this is that if we learn that we can trust the truth, our life does become a continual unfoldment of the truth, even if it's not what we want or we don't like it. We realize we can trust this reality, this moment. And for some reason, this story comes to mind. Um, it's a, really an example. This is, I don't know how many of you know Ajahn Jumnian. You know, Jack Cornfield's first book when he came back from Asia was called Living Buddhist Masters. And it had, I think, 12 different Buddhist masters that he'd studied with, including Ajahn Chah and Mahasi Side out, mostly who's in lineage we practice meditation. And a um, number of other great, great, Thai, Burmese masters. And of all those masters, the only one living is Ajahn Jumnian now. And he comes to Spirit Rock every year. And he is just a wild man. He is so cool. He walks in the Dharma Hall and he's saying, empty, empty, happy, happy. And he's <laughs> he's laughing and he's playing with you and he makes all these faces and does all these things. And he says... You know, he comes in, he says, oh yeah, I'm totally happy. He says, I come and you're all here and I get to teach the Dharma. I love the Dharma, I'm happy. He said, but if nobody's here, oh, then I get to meditate. I love to meditate. I'm, you know, he says, I come to America and I have my baking bowl, you know, and they put this food in. I've never even seen bagels. You know? <laughs> he said, and I love to try new food. And he said, but sometimes there's nothing in my bowl. He said, but that's okay, I could use to lose a few pounds. <laughs> totally. You know, and he's and it's true. He's really like that. He's 
He laughs a lot. He's very happy and very profound. And he told this story this year and he just tells these amazing stories. And he's one of the things he's famous for is he's been he's 65. He's been practicing 60 years now. He started at five. So, but he tells this story at one point in Thailand in the 60s, late 60s, there was really a guerrilla warfare going on between rebels and the army. And he put his retreat center in the middle of the two battling forces. And nobody liked him. The government didn't like him. The rebels didn't like him. But he said, this is, I'm here and I'll teach the Dharma to both sides. And he would do that. But at some point, he got word from some of the people in the rebel group who'd come to like him that the rebel commander and a group were coming to kill him. And so he said he thought about what to do and he thought, well, I don't think I should stay here at the monastery if they're coming to kill me. It wouldn't be good for them if they kill me. He said, I'm not afraid to die. He said he wasn't afraid to die, but he thought it wouldn't be good karma for this rebel commander to kill him. So he thought, well, where should he go? I thought a good place to go would be to the rebel commander's house. (laughs) And that's where he went. And he went, and it was late at night, and he woke up the guy's wife, and he said, I've come here to teach. And she let him in and woke up the kids, and he started teaching. And then he had some of the kids go out and get the neighbors who came over, like, what's going on? And he's teaching, and they came... And he spent the night teaching while the rebel commander and the rebels were looking for him all over the monastery. (laughs) And then he decided to go back and some of the rebels who were there now getting the teachings from him, um, they said, well, you know, you'll get killed. We have to be careful even taking you out of here. They said, you'll have to get dressed up in fatigues. And so they dressed him up in fatigues and over his robes and took him back to the monastery and the rebel commander was still there and he showed up and the guy said, where have you been? I've been looking for you everywhere. And he said, I was at your house teaching. <laughs> and he said, the guy looked at him incredulous and he, said, um, and he said to him, and you know, now that I've taught your wife and daughter, they are the children of the Buddha and so they are, your children are now my children so we share that. And he said to me, he said, well, your wife's still your wife. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, the rebel commander laughed at that. And he said he knew they were going to be friends after that. And they were. So this is a little bit of an extreme example of trusting life and responding appropriately. Not based on ideas or beliefs, but in the moment. Beautiful. And if you can ever come practice with Ajahn Jimian, please come. He's very special. He's, he's really something. He's a great gift for all of us. So orienting towards truth has one other very powerful um, effect. It means we don't orient towards self quite so much. We orient towards something bigger something more fundamental, something more essential. doesn't mean we get rid of the self or have to berate the self or in any way denigrate the self. It's just not where we stop. We begin to orient towards something greater than ourselves. And here's a nice understanding of that from Ashvagosha, who says, the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person go into homelessness or resign for the world unless one is so called from the heart. But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart, and to live a life of awakening. And then, whatever people do, whether you're an artist, or a banker, or a musician, or a grocer, or a computer programmer, or a Uh, a monk or a nun, whatever you do, he says, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in a world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds.
Now this is the path as embodiment, as a living dharma, that we embody the various aspects of the path of sila, of samadhi, of panya, and that the path ultimately transforms us as we become an expression of the dharma. And it's not, maybe even transform us too much. We realize who we are in essence. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Suzuki Roshi used to say, human beings are a temporal expression of the truth. Lovely. Human beings are a temporal, impermanent expression of the absolute truth. So that the absolute and relative are not separate in any way right here, right now. In this, with this, just as it is now, if we can let it be. Let's sit for a minute, please. last words from the Buddha who says, waken yourself, watch yourself, and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way. Reflect upon it. Make it your own. Live it. It will always sustain you. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.